Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome back for season two of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I am your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, and that's Brown without an E. So not like the great Jackson Brown who needs his E. I don't need no stinking E. Uh, anyway, sorry about that. Uh, I do get carried away sometimes, don't I? Um, this is the 15th episode of the podcast so far, not including the trailer. And I'm happy, as always, to have you all along for the ride. Today, we're cracking the seal on a new album, the Heartbreakers' sophomore effort, You're Gonna Get It. The album charted at 23 in the US and features a couple of songs that would eventually end up on the Greatest Hits record, but we're not talking about either of those songs until side two of the record. Today, we're listening to and talking about track one, When the Time Comes. As always, there's a link in the episode notes for you to go and listen to the song. Then once you've done that, come back and I'll give you my thoughts on it. Um, and you can give me your thoughts on it too in the comments. Um, yeah, so go do that. Back so soon? Are you sure you went to listen to the song? You wouldn't lie to me now, would you? Okay, I believe you. Let's dig into it. In the liner notes of the playback box set... Tom Petty remarks that when the time comes reminds him of the days of the new wave and he goes on to joke in conversations with Tom Petty that it might have started the new wave. Of course, the new wave was a blanket term for basically any post-punk music of interest, particularly bands from New York's infamous CBGB music club. So the fit with what the Heartbreakers were doing is tenuous at best, I would say, and something that always seemed to amuse Tom, who simply identified the Heartbreakers with rock and roll more than anything else. The track is another one which, despite being played even as the show opener on the You're Gonna Get It tour and up until around 1980, was dropped and was only played, I think I found two more instances of it being played in 2013 on that tour. So let's get into the music a little bit. Um, in the intro, when that heavy guitar comes in on the left channel, to my ear it has a really similar quality to Suffragette City by Bowie. Uh, but Tom's tone is beefier and a little bit more cutting than Mick Ronson's in that song. And then you have Mike's chugging guitar part in the right channel that gives way to a clean, shimmering treble when the rhythm section comes in after those first four bars. Now, I'm assuming that it's Tom playing that left channel part and Mike in the right, only because the right channel feels a bit more lead than rhythm. But there really isn't particularly a lead guitar part in this song. Um, the guitars just hold the song together and let the vocals and the rhythm section add in the color changes. Now, if you listen to the uh, live version of this song, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, it definitely feels that way too because that lead guitar and Mike does play a little bit of sort of, not exactly a solo, but a little bit more lead notes and lead phrases. And it's definitely in that, that, that part rather than the uh, sort of the stuff that's in the left channel on the studio recording. You get a really good tension early on in the verses in this song. And what builds that tension is that the progression, which is E, G6, uh, F sharp minus seventh back to E, is anchored by Ron's walking bass, just keeping that E root in place. And that's also what the muted second guitar is doing on those first four bars in the right channel. It's just keeping that floor level. When Ron comes in, he had some solid, simple little runs up that E scale, but he never drops into that chord progression with the guitars. So we get that intro of four bars with no drums or bass, then four bars with that rhythm section coming in. So a really short eight-bar intro, after which we're straight into the meat of that first verse. It's an arrow-straight eight-bar verse which then breaks into the major key chorus to, to lift that ominous darkness that's hanging over the song to this point. And that release feels like the sun coming through the clouds and lifts the song into a much more positive space. 
Heading into the second verse, we have the introduction of Benmont's organ part, which we also do hear very, very quietly in that first chorus. But it's brought up, the level's brought up to add a lead back into that second verse. The verse goes back into that same chorus, and as we build back out, Benmont is again matching Ron's position, sticking on that E to give the chord progression more weight. If those parts also step down through that E, D, D flat, B root note change, you'd lose that atmosphere that it, that it builds. And whenever Benmont is playing anything through this song, it's really just accentuating that root E note in the verses predominantly. The middle eight switches up the chord progression, changing key to A and working its way around to C minor for four bars. We then get a neat little songwriting trick coming back out of this section as after the eight bar phrase, we add a couple of bars onto the end to let the bridge hang for a beat longer before going back to B, which then leads us back into the original key for the verse. And that just feels a little bit more natural coming out of B rather than that C minor. We then get another verse and chorus in that same familiar pattern. And once we come out of that last chorus, back into the progression that opens the song, we get some more higher pitched keyboards. And it's almost like a single E, like E6 almost hammering out eights on a, on a piano maybe, which sort of goes out into the fade. So let's talk about the drums and the bass a little bit. Um, Stan's playing it fairly straight, but there's a cool little snare fill leading into that first verse. And the fill into the second is a very neat little double sort of kick repeat pattern that again, adds something to the song without really getting in the way of anything else. And it just shows you that you don't always need to fly around your toms or crash the cymbals heavily to add an accent to the rhythm or to provide sort of a transition from a verse to a chorus or, or vice versa. Coming out of the bridge, we then get some hat lifts and some floor toms mixed fairly low, which come around again during the outro. So really good variety of fills from Stan on this one, um, but staying really in the pocket for the rest of it and just providing that uh, that baseline for everyone else to work from. And the song is quite repetitive in terms of the chord progressions and the, and the bass melody, so it's really good to have those little fills and phrases coming in from Stan. Complementing this is Ron's outstanding bass line. Even though he's playing off that root E through the verses, he's adding some great fills of his own to round out the sound. Whether he's playing between that octave E or adding in those short runs and slides, he's doing the same thing that Stan's doing and filling in the space that's left by the guitars and the vocals, which are really just holding down a very simple, straightforward pattern. The other neat thing that Ron does is, if you listen to it, during the chorus, which is just A and D with a B thrown in, he's going A up to E, up to again to A, then back down to E, back down to A. So he's kind of, it's stepping up, stepping down, rather than always going down to up, down to up. And he alternates that a little bit too. So it's a cool little hook. Again, just adds a simple little thing to create some movement within the, this, the otherwise steady structure of the song. As with the guitars and the keyboards, Tom sings this one pretty straight also. He doesn't sneer or snarl. He doesn't belt. He's not, um, you know, he's not breaking his voice. He's not really, you know, hitting those high, high notes that he could have done. He just hangs the lyrics on a straightforward melodic framework. The lead vocal has plenty of reverb on it, but I think it also might be double tracked uh, just to give it that real depth. It's a restrained, wonderfully melodic vocal track that closely matches the guitar's chord changes throughout the entire song. Okay, time once again for some petty trivia. In last week's Dog on the Run episode, I asked you what is the longest recorded track on a Heartbreakers or solo studio album. The answer is First Flash of Freedom from 2010's blues-drenched epic Mojo. Debuting on February 26th, uh, 2010, the song was one of the two that the band streamed on their website four months before the album itself was released. And at 6 minutes 53 seconds, the song tops the band's list of songs that last more than 6 minutes. 
The other three are Shadow People, the last track on Hypnotic Eye at 6 minutes 37. Echo from the album of the same name, obviously, clocking in at 6 minutes 36. And Running Man's Bible, also from Mojo, which sneaks over the six-minute mark by a mere two seconds. Today's trivia question is this. Which song from the Full Moon Fever album was most frequently the show opener on the Strange Behaviour Tour? Okay, back to the song. Lyrically, again, this is a really simple song. Tom is telling his lover that he has her back no matter what, and he wonders if that loyalty and dependability are going to be reciprocated. It's a common theme through rock and roll, and Tom has written similar themes over the years. As with the melody, it's simple, it's catchy. Will You Stand By Me When The Time Comes will most definitely stick in your head after you're done listening to it. But there's no complexity there. There's no real depth to this one at all. It's just a nice, easy, bouncy song. To be honest, though I can see the New Wave comparison somewhat, however tongue-in-cheek, you know, I mean, Elvis Costello probably could have stolen this lick too, while our tongue is in our cheek. To me, this one is a song that has a a definite Birds-esque feel to it with that atmospheric progression in the verses that remind me a little of Eight Miles High. Um, It also has those wonderful, gentle third harmonies and a very, very clean vocal delivery. Again, what I find really interesting about this song is that melodically, the guitars, keyboards, and the vocals are played super straight. They're kept really simple, with the movement in the song coming from that rhythm section and predominantly from Ron's bass line. It's a really interesting choice for the lead-off track on the album too. Again, with the huge hits that we have on side two, it's a bold move to open with something like this. But in my mind, it's a more natural opener than Rocking Around With You from the first album. Um, And I think it disarms you a little with its slightly sort of mellower, gentler feel as you then drop into the darkness of the second track, you're going to get it, which is the polar opposite of the hopeful positivity of this song. Okay, folks, that's season two up and running. I'm happy to be listening to You're Going to Get It Again. Um, I was going to say, I think I posted this on my socials, but my usual way of tackling these episodes is when I'm prepping for the season, I listen to the album on vinyl once just to sort of you know sit and hear it as a whole and remind myself of any songs or parts of songs that I'd forgotten about or maybe not noticed the first time around or first or second or third or four times around. Uh, then a couple of days later, I'll usually listen again under headphones with a notepad handy just to jot down any sort of general thoughts or maybe things I want to follow up on or dig further into or research. And then the final listen is again to get a feel for the whole album before I dive into each track individually. Overall, I think that When the Time Comes is a solid 6 out of 10. It's got a cool feel to it, it's easy to sing along to, and it's a pretty good choice for the album opener, really. Um, Again, I'll leave it at 6 because it's not near Tom's best work lyrically or in terms of structure, but it is still a fun song and one you'd never skip if it came up on on your playlist on Shuffle. I did find one live version of the song from Hammersmith in London in 1980. And interestingly, they only do half of the bridge. I'm not too sure why. That's an interesting sort of change. And I, I think, again, that dynamic of when you have those extra two bars really gives the song something. So I'm, I'm curious why they took those out. Um, otherwise, it's a pretty straight arrangement with Stan singing the high harmonies and Mike playing a little more lead in the outro. And maybe that would have sounded great in the recorded version too. Um, so I'll add that into the episode notes for you so you can have a listen to that. Um, 
Don't forget that you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Tom Petty Project or on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Just drop the the. Uh, so go hit follow, like, you know, subscribe, etc. And again, please leave a review or a rating if you haven't already done so. They do help um, to get the word out there. I'm also working diligently, finally, on getting the website up to date. So I'll be trying to make that as comprehensive a resource for these episodes as possible. And maybe adding in some of the stuff like, you know, set lists and these types of things of, of shows that I talk about maybe. So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about the second track of the album. You're going to get it. Bye-bye. <laughs>